of Speaking, a monthly podcast on the spoken word. Episode number 67, August 2023. Harmonic Overtone Chanting. A conversation with Jill Purse. Hello, Paul Meyer here. A quick commercial first. Gotta pay the bills after all. If you've always wanted to learn how to do accents and dialects, but haven't yet come across my book, Accents and Dialects for Stage and Screen, It'll teach you nearly 30 different ones. It comes in several different formats. There are two hard copy printed versions. One delivers the all important sound files on 12 CDs bound into the book, and the other delivers them as streaming audio, direct from the internet, no CDs. That one has three additional dialects and is cheaper. This version is also available at the same price as an iTunes ebook or Apple book. The sound files are embedded directly into the text. All the details at paulmeyer.com. Now, before the main course of our feast today, here's our usual hors d'oeuvre. Our quiz, guess that accent. Last time I played this clip from the Idea Archive and challenged you to say where on the planet the speaker grew up. In the old clockwork mechanism watches, if you went up the mount with a old-style watch on, it has stopped working because the magnetic pull was that strong. If you guessed Australia, congratulations. It was Ideas Australia 38, contributed by Rhea Dowden. Thanks, Rhea. This is only our second sample from the vast state of Western Australia. To hear the whole recording, go to the Dialects and Accents tab on the menu bar of dialectsarchive.com and drill down to Australia. Now, this month's challenge... Where did this speaker spend his formative years? And since that moment, we are a colony of the United States. The United States avoids the word colony. And they call it territories. But uh, as I told once to President Clinton, if you look about that word territory, you find it in the Constitution of the United States, written in the 18th century. Get the answer next time. By the way, if you're listening to me at the moment on iTunes or Audible or any other podcast channel, switch over to paulmeyer.com and from the Other Services menu tab, select In a Manner of Speaking and then click episode number 67. There's a ton of extra material not available elsewhere. My guest this month is Jill Purse, the Diane of overtone chanting. Over 30 years ago, I attended one of her amazing workshops. Like many of you, I had heard Buddhist monks and others producing those amazing sounds, the low, deep drone note, and then those high bell-like overtones. Magic. I wanted to do that. Jill taught the group the rudiments of this skill. Very impressive. So, Jill, welcome to In a Manner of Speaking. Thank you. Very pleasant to be here. I've been treasuring the memory of our workshop back all those years ago in Big Sur in Esalen and... Uh, it's a, one of the highlights of my life to attend that overtone chanting workshop. So please, for the uninitiated, what are overtones and can you demonstrate? Absolutely. So overtones are the sounds that are contained in any note that you hear, unless it's a sine wave, a pure sine wave, and they colour the sound and they tell you who or what is making the sound by 
the loudness of the particular constituent parts. So it's a little bit like adding spices or herbs to a meal. You can add a little bit more of this, a little bit less of that. So every sound has its own characteristic colour. And that's interesting because we have to borrow from the language of vision. And in fact, the best analogy is a little bit, is very much visual in the sense that it's the rainbow. So we know that white light contains all the rainbow colours, but we don't see them unless it goes through a prism through a raindrop or a crystal hanging in your window and then you see reflected out the constituent colours of the rainbow. Well it's the same with sound. You can allow sequentially these other internal constituent sounds to be heard by using your mouth as a filter. Mm. And we do that every day in speech. So the difference between one vowel and another is which of the harmonics or, or, or the overturns, depending on which word you're going to use, are louder than others. And so vowels are very pure because the harmonics are the purest aspect of sound, which is made up of noise at one end of the spectrum and pure tone at the other. And harmonics or, or overtones or partials are the most ordered part of sound. They're always present. So when we hear a note, we might think that we're hearing a single note, but actually yes. that sound has infinite number of other sounds within it. Infinite, is it? Uh, yes, mm, it jumps. That's infinite overtones there, have I? Well, you don't hear them because they get higher and they go out of range very quickly. Yes. So the first one is the note itself, which is the fundamental note, and the next one's the octave, the next the fifth above that octave, and then the fourth above that, the fourth above that, major and minor thirds. And so that you can see that the sounds get closer and closer together, and very soon you can't even hear them on the piano anymore. So theoretically, I think they're infinite, but they're limited by our hearing. And wonderful people like you and all of your students have learned to sort of make the overtones prominent. How, how is that done? And can you demonstrate that? Before we talk about how it's done, I, I should say why it's important. One of the reasons it's important was because in the 17th century, there was a the big surge in popularity of the keyboard instruments. Everybody bought pianos and started to play them every drawing and we had a piano and so on. Before the popularity of keyboards, how people tuned music was to go from a note to the fifth above, mm -hmm, and then from the fifth above that, the fifth above, until you get the octave above. So it's called a cycle of fifths. And what happens is that when you should, in theory, reach the octave, you don't. You overlap it by a quarter of a semitone. And this is very problematic when you have instruments with fixed tuning like keyboard instruments. So with the popularity of keyboard instruments in the 17th century, there had to be a new form of tuning, and this was called the well-tempered scale. And Bach celebrated this with the preludes and fugues for the well-tempered clavier, showing how you could now play in every key, which you couldn't before. And so it's a way of being in tune. It's also a very profound meditation technique because we can only chant in the present. And as long as we're listening to ourselves chanting in the present, then we can only be in the present. And that's what the aim of all spiritual traditions is, is how to be in the present and not regretting the past and dreading what you therefore have to do in the future and eliminating the present altogether. So the reverse is true. So you're trying to be in the present. And so if you're chanting, you can only chant in the present, but you have to listen to yourself chanting while you're chanting to remain in the present. So it's a very profound um, meditative technique. Mm -hmm. And also you're activating all the vibratory levels of um, of the human body, of which there are many, and you are then tuning in with the vibratory levels of the universe, which is everything is yes. um, 
speaking of the universe, we have a thunderstorm moving over, so we may we may get some of the universe coming into our little podcast today. Perfect. So going back to your original question of how you do it, you have to make a kind of resonant chamber in the mouth. Well, first of all, we do it all the time. So speaking is made up of two components, if you like. So the, the air comes up over the vocal folds and resonates and it creates a sound. And then what happens to that sound? Either it's interrupted by the teeth and the tongue and the lips, which turns it into a noise sound where the waveforms are chaotic or disordered or a music is called aleatoric or they're not interrupted but they're shaped by the cavity that you allow them to sound again which is the real meaning of resonate in that is the pure tone aspect of the sound so so the vowels are the part of vocalizing which is produced by the overtones and it's the part of vocalizing which is purely and and superbly in tune. And so all the time we're speaking, the vowel component of our speech is made up of overtones. So to do the overtone chanting, you exaggerate this and you extend the length of it and you change the shape of the resonant cavity so that you can hear the difference. And so in order to hear the overtones, you change from one cavity shape to another. I can demonstrate. I'd love that. I'll now play Rupert Sheldrake, my husband, Cosmo Sheldrake, my son, Merlin Sheldrake, my other son, myself, uh, chanting together. Yes, well, it's a, it's a wonderful thing to do together, and it's particularly good for people who, you know, have been told they can't sing in tune, they can't carry a note, and um, this is a wonderful way of getting people to use their voices again. I'm going to play a little thing of, uh, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name right, you'll know, Nestor Kornblum. Uh-huh, yeah. I came across this fascinating example of him actually singing Amazing Grace entirely in the overtones. Oh, yes, yes, people can. Fundamental drone pitch. I, I think the listeners would love that, and I'll play it and then ask for you to, to comment. Here we go. slightly gimmicky. I mean, the only people who do, who use overtone chanting indigenously, if you like, are people from Central Asia. So Tibetans use it as a meditative technique as part of their pujas. Mongolians use it as a shamanic technique, which in the 60s they would deny because being a shaman was, was beyond the pale at that point. But now it's all the rage and so now they're very busy saying it's shamanic again and people from Tuva. So these are really the only people who do it. And usually, for example, Tuvans play a horse-headed fiddle, which absorbs the fundamental, so you just hear the overtones. And when I was in the Himalayas learning this method 
from a Tibetan, he said to the young Lama who was sitting with us, now you take her to the waterfall. I had originally asked my Tibetan Lama, you know, about it. And he said, oh, yes, they do it by waterfalls. And so when this moment came years later and he said, oh, we must take her to the waterfall, I thought this is very exciting. And then I got it because a waterfall makes a white noise, which is a completely chaotic sound. that It's totally disordered. And then when you get the overturns, you hear them floating above the top. It's a wonderful sort of way of learning how to do it. These are the only people who do it indigenously. But what I'm trying to do is not sound like a Tibetan, a Tuvan or a Mongolian or to sing tunes. But it's really to use it as a very profound meditative technique because, you know, the world that we inhabit is a resonant one. And the only way that we can really participate in that consciously is through resonance. And the only way we can really do that as humans is by using our voice. So we know that the voice alone or or when shaped into speech or singing can instantly transform our emotions. It's it's sort of irresistible somehow. I, I have only to sing to chase away the blues or perhaps I can recite a bit of Shakespeare to alter my mindset for the better. And you, Jill, better than most, know that the know the healing properties of voice and overtone chanting. So talk to us a little more deeply about the therapeutic properties as you've experienced them and written about in your book, The Healing Voice. As I mentioned, there are these two components to the voice, the noise element, which is, comes through consonants, and the vowel or harmonic part. And it's the harmonic part which is supremely ordered. As I mentioned, it's just pure sine waves. So the induction of clarity or, if you like, enlightenment or healing comes through the induction of order in all its form. And hence you get the word Vajra or diamond mind, for example, in the development of consciousness. I see healing being a product of the development of awareness of consciousness, clarity of mind and so on. Mm. And so when we talk, the component parts of the voice are pretty much balanced between noise in the consonant part and pure order in the vowel part. I mean, yes. that's what speech is about. We interrupt it, you know, the vowel is interrupted by the consonants and that punctuates it and tells us, you know, where it ends and begins. But something happens when you sing. Something very interesting goes on there. So when you sing, what you extend is only the vowel part. You really can't extend the the noise element, the the consonant part. On the other hand, if you don't put the noise element, especially with a high soprano singing, if you don't put the consonant at the end, you have no idea what they're singing about. But what's extended is the order, is the vowels, is is the overtones. And this is what makes singing very different from speaking. It turns it from something relatively profane into something absolutely magical. And then you also mentioned poetry. Well, poetry does the same thing using words, but adding rhythm, rhyme and so on, well, at least traditionally, which again is another form of order. So this is a very important element which transforms speaking into chanting or singing, depending on how much melody there is. I'm fond of saying to actors that you can hover on the border between singing and speaking, and you can invoke the magic of singing into the speaking voice. 
Yes, I mean, you can do that if you elongate the vowel. I mean, technically, anyway, if you elongate the vowels. Or you can, you can add sing-song, you can add sort of melody to the voice, which is another way of doing it. And also, actors used to learn how to make their voices resonant. There used to be something called a voice prop or voice props. I never actually saw them. I was trained with those. I think you're talking ah. about what we used to call a bone prop. You put a little, bone prop. You put a little thing between your, your front teeth to uh, make your voice cavity a little bigger and then you learn to add resonance this is exactly it so the most resonant space that we know is a sphere with a hard surface and that's because there's nowhere on the surface of the sphere where the sound isn't directed back to the center and the smoother it is the more it's reflected and so by using a bone prop you're creating as much as possible that kind of a round shape which means that you amplify the harmonics because you're creating a resonant space and you can only amplify the harmonics if you keep the air inside in order that you can uh, sound again which is what resonant means and so sounding yes the more cave-like your mouth or which is what bone props used to do um, the more resonant your voice is going to be amazing i'm going to play you this little clip and get you to comment on it notice it going down in pitch which is one of the things that can happen when people chant together because they sort of relax and it gets lower yes. and lower. This is the harmonic choir, a CD called Hearing Solar Winds, Ascending and Descending. So I, I'm hearing some of the choir there ascending in their fundamental and some lowering. So it's ascending yeah. and descending at the same time. Is that what you're hearing? Yes, yes. So it's well, intentional, obviously, yeah. Yeah. What else do you hear in there that regular people like me wouldn't hear just the the internal components of the sound the harmonics even ordinary or you know classical musicians often don't hear the harmonics when i'm teaching people you you need to teach them to hear them as well as to make them a first time listener might just wonder what on earth is going on here's a famous piece of your own The video of that is absolutely fascinating because, of course, you did this in St. Paul's Cathedral with seven or eight friends, right? Yes, yes. I, I was friendly with the um, Bishop of London and various canons, and they invited me in the evening there. 
you know, it's so incredibly resonant. And um, so a group of us went in and chanted. What did the building itself contribute to the experience? Is there sacred geometry at work? Well, whenever you get spherical spaces, which of course St. Paul's is par eminence, you know, par eminent, um, uh, again, for the reason that I described, because all the sounds are reflected back to the centre, you get extreme resonance. Most sacred buildings have domes in them. So this contributes particularly to the magic of the sound. And the Cistercian ones are particularly resonant because um, they were actually created with music in mind. I mean, Bernard of Clairvaux, who started the Cistercian order, I mean, he talked about musical architecture. And so uh, some of the most resonant sacred spaces anywhere in the world are Cistercian monasteries. Amazing. You've already broached the topic of Tuvan and Mongolian exponents of this. And I'm going to play a little clip. Five, unbelievably, it's female exponents that you'll hear exclusively in this recording. It's a little unbelievable when you first hear it. They're overtone and throat singing experts from around the world. And, and we have Tuvan, Mongolian, Inuit and German singers. I would have loved to have identified them all for us, but they were left nameless on the YouTube clip from which this short extract comes. However, I did recognize the German expert. Her name is Anna Marie Heffel. H-E-F-E-L-E. -E. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And her YouTube channel has some even more amazing demonstrations here. So let's listen to this and then get your, your comments. collection. Yeah. The Inuit women stand very close together, their mouths almost touching but not quite, and they do something which I've never, I've, I've, I've only met them once and had them try to show me but I couldn't, it's a, <laughs> it's a kind of thing like that, it's not quite the same thing at all, and then, and right. then it, they make it into a game and then they burst into peals of laughter. A lot of the very deep throat broken sounds uh, is a very different technique, it's called kagira amongst the Tuvan, so it's a particular form of overtone chanting. There are lots of different forms. Throat singing is entirely different from polyphonic overtone singing, right? Throat singing is a general name, like humi is a general name, and it covers all kinds of different techniques, yeah, yes. some of which you played there. As your career developed, your interest in overtone chanting took a new turn, or perhaps it wasn't a new turn. I'm talking about your, your celebrated work with sonorous family constellations. Can you Give us a brief overview of that work. 
I've done all kinds of things over the years, and including very extended vocal ceremonies where the group of maybe a hundred people becomes the mandala and progresses through itself, changing the, the afflictive emotions into their corresponding wisdoms and chanting continuously for over a week. And I've done over 30 of those, and they're, they're very, very extraordinary. Then voice workshops where I'm teaching people to do all kinds of different vocal techniques and different breathing techniques, which bring about healing um, and transformation. And then what I found is that the use of ceremony is very interesting because if people come to me to do any kind of workshop with me, they usually come wanting to change to become, I don't know, kinder, more, more, more enlightened, you know, increased more liberated, more understanding, you know, people go to these things or come to these things in order to change. And so what happens is that they do that and they change and then they go back home and the back home doesn't know they've changed. And so they sort of loop around them in the same formation as they did before. And then there's no, you know, they just go back to how they used to be. So what I found with ceremony is that if you have people, and this is the point about ceremony, if you have people who witness the people changing from one thing to another, then you know that they know that you know there's no going back. And so, you know, when somebody gets married, you have somebody who witnesses you going from being unmarried to being married, for example. So I find ceremony very, very important. And I started, when I was doing the voice workshop, doing ceremonies to honor the ancestors. And I found that people's lives changed dramatically. And then that gradually led to doing family constellations. But I say sonorous family constellations because between working with each person, I use sound and chanting to amplify the resonant field of the family and ancestors. So this work is really a field phenomenon and it's about the unfinished business. So the continuation of traumas down the transgenerationally through family lines. Yes. Uh, where anybody has died young, committed suicide, died in childbirth on the field of battle, emigrated, become addicted, or illegitimacy, or incarceration, or abuse, or um, adoption, addiction, any, any of these kinds of interruptions cause a trauma in the field. And that comes down to every generation. This was found when people were looking at the descendants of the victims of the Holocaust, of the famine in Sweden in the 19th century, the famine in Holland and the war and so on. And they found that people underwent not only emotional and psychological uh, transformations, in fact, you know, real problems, but also physical and chemical changes. And this is, of course, in line with epigenetics, which is the latest hot word in science, where the acquiring of, of uh, the transference down the lines of acquired characteristics. I did a research fellowship with Maurice Wilkins, one of the three to get the Nobel Prize for the structure of DNA in the 50s. And at that point, everything was in the DNA. But the inheritance of acquired characters was always part of what was understood by people like Darwin, Lamarck, Lysenko, all these people. And now, of course, it's coming again. Does this tie into your husband, Rupert Sheldrake's work oh, with yes, morphic resonance? Absolutely. Most material scientists are trying to find out materially why the genes are turned on and off in such a way that you can inherit these things, whereas my husband thinks it's a resonant phenomenon. And I'm sure that's more the case. And how fascinating that sound is part of that, the resonance of sound is part of what you're exploring here. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We all chant together, we're resonating the, the family and ancestral field, we're activating the field so that the ancestors are, are present in a sense, are able to help 
because the ancestors have no agency unless the living acknowledge them. We will remember you, we say. And the best way of doing that is through the voice and chanting. And so I use sound a lot in this work and it's absolutely magnificent and totally transformatory. I'm sure it is. I'd, I'd like to experience it myself. This podcast, in a manner of speaking, usually concerns speech rather than voice. Although, of course, as you pointed out, you can't have speech without voice. So can knowledge of overtones help the spoken word actor and other spoken word practitioners? Can we work the same magic, the holiness? Can we access all of that, applying some of the overtone chanting and singing techniques? Definitely. I mean, one of the things that voice teachers try to induct into their students is that the voice is engaged and this applies as much in the speaking voice as in the singing voice the voice we have to engage our voices not to artificially change your voice but the the point about any work with a voice and that includes speaking is to get your authentic voice um, and to engage it and so the harmonics are a way of working with resonance in their most explicit form if you learn singing for example classical singing you know one of the things that's hardest to transmit between teacher and pupil is resonance but if you learn to do resonance in this way where you actually articulate and amplify the internal notes of the sound yes then you know you're understanding resonance so completely and that affects your speaking voice as well I'm going to play a little bit of Richard Burton speaking the opening of Under Milk Wood by Dylan Thomas. Burton's voice was, for many, the most thrilling speaking voice ever. And it seems to me very rich in overtones, uh, maybe those Welsh wood notes, wild. Let's listen to Richard Burton and then and talk about what we've heard. To begin at the beginning. It is spring, moonless night in the small town, starless and Bible-black, the cobble streets silent and the hunched quarters and rabbits' wood limping invisible down to the slow black, slow black, crow-black fishing boat bobbing sea. The houses are blind as moles, Though moles see fine tonight in the snouting velvet dingles, or blind as Captain Cat there in the muffled middle by the pump and the town clock, the shops in mourning, the welfare hall in widow's weeds, and all the people of the lulled and dumbfound town are sleeping now. Obviously, we hear those vowels extended houses, blind moles see fine tonight. But there's also extension of, uh, of concerts, singing. Yes. Well, I mean, one of the things I noticed, I've witnessed a lot of Sufi teachers, for example, and also Rajneesh. And very often when they're speaking, they elongate the S's, almost like a snake, snake sound. Yeah. And it's very hypnotic, uh, that um, I've, I've noticed. But yes, I, I mean, you can... And you can be quite hypnotic in the way that you can, you know, and you can also as you say, make the vowels very rich, but also extend, you know, that sort of, particularly the S sound. I mean, you can actually extend all of the continuant consonants. The only things you cannot extend are, of course, the stop consonants. He actually does elongate those continuant consonants. Yeah. And and seems to me, as a result, to to hover between the sacred and the profane, the, the vowels and the and the consonants and, and, and hover between singing and speaking. 
He's activating the harmonics, as you say, he's, he, the vowels are very conspicuous, and he's also extending the consonants, so he's very much bringing resonance and, and this kind of hypnotic effect into his voice. Yeah, it's, and it's wonderful indeed. There seems to me a certain brightness, which I associate with the overtones in, in some of his vowel shapes. I mean, you and I probably say people, 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 but he says pe, pe, people, people. There's something about that E, the placement, the shape of his E sound that is brighter. Would you agree? Yes, absolutely. And I'm sure the Welsh has something to do with it. I mean, it's not for nothing that the Welsh are considered to be wonderful singers, you know. Yes. Welsh is very funny because if you look at it written down, it looks like it's all consonants. But when you hear it, it's all vowels. Yes, yes. I did a podcast on the uh, primeval sounds of Roy Hart. You you know Roy Hart's work? Well, I know of him. I, I didn't meet him, but he, yeah. you know, he extended his voice in all directions. Yes. Yes. Podcast number 59. And the, the sounds that he and his successors were able to make are, are thrilling in a very similar way, it seems to me, to overtone singing and chanting. The sounds are primal and daring and intriguing. They, they sound more than human somehow. Yes. You referred to Stockhausen and your work with him in the early 70s, was it? Yes. Tell us about their work. I'm fascinated to learn more about your work with Stockhausen. Well, I mean, I was living and working and living with him. And, and so, you know, he was like, we were partners. It was fascinating. I mean, you know, he was he was sort of larger than life and was genuinely a sort of genius figure. And I mean, the particular role that he played in my work was this transmission of the harmonics. I'd been studying the Tibetan Buddhists long before, so I got it from them. And, and I got it from him as a sort of Western art music version because he had created sound from pure sine waves you know he created electronic music it didn't exist before he in the 50s you know he started it just using sine waves and building up sound from sine waves pure waves i got to understand sound in a very 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 profound way and you know understand how it's built up and so on just as a digression is there no sound generated in the natural world that compares with a sine wave in its singularity? Or I'm thinking of certain flute music that, that sounds so pure that... Yeah, funnily enough, flute, flutes are quite complex, actually. The nearest would be a sort of tuning fork in the natural world, I think. I see. Um, bells are very complex. You know, they, they might sound very pure, but they're actually quite complex, have overtones and undertones. And yeah. flutes are very complicated uh, and... Um, not pure at all, actually. Um, so there really is no sound in the natural world that is a like a sine wave, an electronic sound. Not really. I mean, except for you know tuning forks. Not not really. No, That's not that I've come across. Anyway, they're all composite sounds. They're all contain complex harmonic pictures. Yeah, I'm not sure about bird sounds. I I don't know. I I can't answer that. Jill, this has been just fascinating. I know the listeners will. Agree with him. Thanks for joining me, Jill, on In a Manner of Speaking. You're very welcome. And thanks to you for joining me, Paul Meyer, and my guest, Jill Purse. To learn more about her and her work, and for the links to the audio clips I played today, go to paulmeyer.com, choose In a Manner of Speaking from the Other Services tab on the menu bar, and click on episode 67. Email me with your comments and questions, paul at paulmeyer.com. And don't forget to follow Paul Meyer Dialect Services on Facebook and me on Twitter, or X, if you prefer the new name, at Dialect Paul. The audio clips used in this episode were all taken from YouTube and used under the copyright doctrine of fair use. 
Details on the podcast webpage. Join me next month on In a Manner of Speaking. <laughs>